0: you're listening to the human upgrade with dave asprey formerly bulletproof, bulletproof radio a state of high performance. you're listening to the human upgrade with dave asprey today on the show we're going to talk about nature and the guest that i found for you today is a senior sustainability editor at mind Body green And she's an environmental journalist. And she's done a lot of research in how nature, human health, and helping the climate actually interact with each other. And it'll be a very, very interesting time to chat. Uh, Her name is Emma Lowy. And with no further ado, Emma, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Dave. Excited to be here.
0: You actually wrote a book called The Spirit Almanac a modern guide to ancient self-care that plus a book on uh, nature and the environment. Are you the ultimate hippie? Is that what's going on here?
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to get that title. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, what can I say? I love nature. Who doesn't?
0: How did you get the interest in ancient healing modalities? I mean, you go pretty deep on, on some of the stuff you talk about, you know, ancient spiritual practices, uh, ritual, things like that, and you went from there to the environment. But I wonder, how did you get into that side of, of more esoteric biohacking?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I've been at Mind Body Green for about going on seven years now, and in that time, I've had the pleasure of speaking to people sort of on all, you know, walks of wellness, um, including a lot of, you know, yoga teachers and people who come from different spiritual lineages and things of that nature. So they sort of piqued my interest in the the ritual self-care side of things.
0: Okay. So you got into it that way. You learned about it and you decided that it was worth writing a book about nature landscapes. We've had several guests talk about forest bathing, about benefits of times in nature. It's in my book, Game Changers, as one of the 46 things that high performers do, but I've not come across anyone Um, who's really thought about, okay, you know, this environment creates this state. And I think that's a unique way of thinking about it. When did you realize that different environments were creating different states?
1: you know, you mentioned forest bathing. I think that research was really, you know, instrumental to me to start thinking about landscapes in this way. You know, a lot of times when we refer to getting out in nature, we sort of use the word like nebulous, like, oh, we're going out in nature, but there are obviously so many different sorts of landscapes we can experience and ways that we can interact with them. Um, so I was curious if there was a way to compile existing research into different sort of buckets depending on what landscape someone might have access to or be interested in visiting Um, and i was pleased to find that the research does exist Um, it just hadn't been put together in quite this way before
0: what percentage of time does the average person spend in nature now oh gosh What percentage of time does the average person spend in nature now?
1: Oh, gosh. So the most recent um, data is from, I think, the late 1990s. But it was something like 6% of every day, which I think is maybe even high in a post-COVID world. Um, So not enough, (laughs) for sure.
0: Well, that's definitely the numbers that I came across was about 87% of the time indoors. The rest of the time is in cars other than that 6% where you might be outdoors, but being outdoors doesn't mean you're in nature. If you're in a typical city and walking between skyscrapers in Shanghai probably doesn't count as nature. In fact, it's probably worse than being indoors. (laughs) At least that was my last experience um, in Shanghai because of air quality, right? So... How how did you go about putting together the research for your new book called Return to Nature? Um, What in fact it launches the day that this podcast comes out and we share a publisher. But um, how would you know? (laughs) Like where did you find this information? Because I haven't come across it before.
1: So I mean, I think you know, like any sort of journalistic project, you start by reaching out to people who are really you know spearheading the research and ask them, you know, who in the space should I be talking to? You know, who's doing interesting stuff right now? Um, so that was sort of my first avenue into it. And I would say there are sort of two main, maybe three main clusters of researchers who are doing this that I think about it. It's people who are studying green space. So that's the sort of more typical, like the health benefits of getting out into parks, for example. Then you have blue space researchers. There are a fair amount of those in the UK specifically. Um, and then forest bathing researchers who are obviously you know, over in Asia and researching you know forest landscapes specifically.
0: So which benefits... Uh, Which, When you're exposed to nature, where do you see it first? Is this a a physical well-being? Is this a mental well-being? Is it spiritual? Kind of break down the percentages of each. I know it's not quite that rigid, but kind of which one's bigger or smaller?
1: So I think, you know, a really big one that is probably obvious to people right away is just that getting outside in nature, we tend to also be moving, you know, when we're outdoors, we go on a walk in a park, for example. And there's, you know, obvious benefits in moving your body, you know, in any landscape, um, indoors or out. Um, But there is some pretty interesting research to show that, you know, when people do what they call green exercise, it actually does tend to be more beneficial in the sense that, People report less exertion, so it feels easier to them than perhaps if they were doing it inside. Uh, their blood pressure also tends to return to normal and some of the uh, faster after outdoor green exercise, which is kind of interesting. Um, so that's a definite avenue. There's also sort of the cognitive uh, benefits of getting outdoors seem to be very interesting. A lot of research finds that once you return inside from you know a trip outdoors, you score better on things like working memory tests. Um, You tend to have less brain activity in certain regions that are responsible for things like negative self-talk or rumination. So that's a definite component. And then the emotional part of it, you know, I think that it's um, across the board, people report less stress when they, you know, get back from time outdoors. It also shows in their physiology, you know, they have lower cortisol levels, lower blood pressure, lower heart rate. So I think all these things really come together, you know, in a formative outdoor experience.
0: So there's no way to really say you get more mental benefits or more spiritual benefits or more physical benefits. Cause I mean, moving is moving. You, you can do that on a whole body vibration platform in a basement on a space station if you want to, but I think it's more than that.
1: Definitely. And I, I don't know if it would, I think it just, just depends so much on the experience. You know, if you're in a landscape that really, for example, Mio makes you feel an emotion like awe. I think there's reason to believe that that will sort of stick with you longer, and it might, you know, be more beneficial to your body than if you're just taking, you know, a walk around the block—the same walk around the block that you've taken every day of your life. So,
0: so there, there's some differences there. Um, one of the things that impressed me about your work is you had 30 pages of references to what you're saying. So, I think everyone listening has heard me and countless others say. You should spend time outdoors. it's good for you. <laughs> right? So we all kind of know it. Also you should eat healthy uh, and you should exercise. Um, but how exactly can you exercise to get the most benefits? Well, that's I'm, I'm working on that with upgrade labs. and you know there's a lot of new knowledge about these things. And do you understand the mechanism of action for, for nature? I mean, is it because you're getting natural light? Is it that you're seeing green colors? Is it that your eyes relax? Like what, what are the big things it's doing physiologically? Do we understand that?
1: We don't have a super clear picture of it, but, you know, people obviously have some some guesses as to what's happening. You know, I think one theory that's, um, you know, sort of the main accepted one is called the attention restoration theory, and it sort of posits that, you know, when we're indoors doing, you know, things on screens or focusing, you know, on the task at hand, it's very cognitively draining, um, but for, you know, whatever reason, when we get outside, it sort of gives our brains... Um, they call it like soft fascination. So something to sort of like rest your attention on in this landscape. So that's obviously a very like visual, you know, interpretation of it. But then there's also this, you know, interesting research that I walked through in the book to show that, you know, everything from the sounds of ocean waves to the smell of certain trees can also sort of build upon that, you know, initial restorative effect. So I do think it's kind of a culmination of a lot of different pathways.
0: And it seems like it's not one of the things you can get down to one variable or even maybe stack rank what it's doing because we have this concept of polypharma research. Like, oh, what happens if you take two drugs together? Well, I'm working on, we'll call it poly exercise (laughs) theory with data at Upgrade Labs. It says, what if you do this and this? Like what order, how do you combine them? And it seems like when you're getting a prescription for nature, it's a bunch of different things that are all happening simultaneously that are doing it. Um, and I would call out the visual field stuff you talked about. One of my regular practices is I'll work at my computer and I have different depths of vision for that. But I also make sure that I turn and I look out at a, a Vista, which I have out my window so I can see, you know, Salt Spring Island. And when I worked as a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road because I was you know the lowest guy on the totem pole, they put me in a couple others and they called the Fishbowl. It's this like kind of dark room in the middle with a couple windows where, you, where people could see in, but you could see no natural light. and I'm looking at the first Mac I got this was a while back but with a real bright screen and bad fluorescent or LED lighting, whatever it was. But after an hour or two in there, it was just like zombifying so I'd go outside and like get some sun and like see at a distance and then your eyes would relax and then your body would chill, and then you go back in and and do the work. So it maybe wasn't the best working environment just physiologically, but I found I couldn't go eight hours sitting in there because I would just kind of zombify. And it's that visual relaxation that you get from being outdoors unless you're in a dense forest, and then you can't see far, but you can see detail. And that seems seems really important, way more than we give it credit for. Um, Any specific research on that?
1: Uh, On the forest side of things?
0: Or just on the relaxation of the brain because of what you see?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's some really interesting research that sort of, you know, talks uh, more about what you were experiencing in that job where you sort of got out and saw this and you're like, oh, my brain is like restored. Um, You know, in terms of things like creative thinking and problem solving, you know, there's research to show that actually helps to look out onto more open, expansive space than like focus in on, you know, your computer, for example. So I think that's sort of, you know, part of, uh another reason why you know getting up and taking breaks looking out the window um even looking at a blank wall if you don't have access to a window can be helpful to sort of help your brain make those more creative connections where do you live i live in brooklyn new york
0: uh i was guessing you have like the perfect new york apartment set up behind you <laughs> thank you how the heck do you actually get nature in brooklyn
1: So, I mean, one of the chapters of the book is, you know, the urban landscape chapter. So it's definitely something that I think about a lot is how can I live in a city that, you know, like you mentioned, it's, you know, New York isn't as bad as other places, but you have things like air pollution, you have things like noise pollution, you are surrounded by concrete, you know, I live in a high rise. Um, So I wanted to think about how I could, you know, experience nature in this place. Um, And, you know, thankfully enough for me, the research really does show that it doesn't have to be some sort of like grand, you know, forest to getaway um, in order to like really, you know, change you on a physiological level, you know, access to things like pocket parks or even street trees that are finding that can have a really similar effect. If you, if you let it, you know, if you, instead of getting outside and just listening to, you know going on a phone call or just sort of tuning out in your environment, I think it's important to really make that outdoor time like your outdoor time and just, you know, look up at the trees, see what you can spot, you know, take out your headphones, smell the air, just let it sort of sink in. Um, I think that's especially important for city dwellers.
0: Um, That is kind of sad though, because at least when I'm in cities, there's that one tree, but it's the dog's favorite tree. It it feels almost worse than no nature. (laughs) Like this this one poor, sad tree. I mean, isn't that maybe not good for you?
1: I mean, it makes me sad sometimes. And then the trash, obviously, drives me insane. But, you know, it's funny. I actually went on a walk for a story that I'm working on um, last week with a naturalist who works in New York City. And I asked her the same question, you know, do you feel deprived of nature in this place? And she said, no, never. And I think she said it's because she thought she was always looking for it and she was always attuned to it. So I thought that was a, a powerful example.
0: You came up with eight different landscapes that that do different things. Can you tell me what those eight are? We've mentioned one, which is city and built environments, which is a kind of landscape that actually has a specific effect. But tell me about the other seven.
1: Yeah. So the first one is grasslands and parks. Then we have uh, forests, mountains, desert, uh, ice and snow, rivers, and I am missing one. Did I say mountains?
0: You didn't say wetlands. No, you had parks er, and gardens. Mountains, yeah, mountains and highlands. Okay.
1: Yeah. I'm still missing. So, my how did oh, you ocean, end up? Sorry.
0: Oh, ocean. Of course. <laughs> there, yeah, there it is. Um, oceans and coasts. So oceans the coastal coast. stuff. Um, more like where I live. I get forests and trees and oceans and coasts and not much else. Um, why did you end up with those eight buckets?
1: So I think that you know, just given the research that does, that's out there, they made the most sense. Um, I should also say that you know, there's been a lot of studies in places like parks, um, especially considering a lot of this research is done, you know, on college campuses. So they've been, you know, green spaces on college campuses and, you know, things like that. There is a lot less research on, you know, the tops of mountains or in desert environments. So, you know, just sort of seeing where the research exists and also seeing if there are any sort of cornerstone experiences that people might have in different environments, like a mountain, for example, um, and sort of teasing out like, okay, well there's this really expansive research on awe and that's something that people do tend to experience on mountaintops. So that probably belongs in that chapter. Um, so making those sorts of those sorts of decisions. I also just thought they were, you know, places that a lot of people could identify with.
0: One of the reasons that until recently, California was a state where people wanted to live. Um, and you can figure out why until recently, depending on whether you're paying attention to either economics or social policy, that's a different podcast. But people like to live there because you could get all of these environments uh, within basically a two hour drive, and that was one of the the really special things about whether it's northern or southern. You know there's just so much available. but a lot of the the world um and i'll I'll probably localize this to the u s just a little bit because we have most of those environments. I remember talking to a friend uh, from Kansas and she was taking her 3 year old and they went for a drive and it was the first time he'd seen a tree and he goes look mom giant broccoli <laughs> cuz he'd never seen a tree so there are people who live in places where there are no mountains there are no coasts like half these environments just aren't accessible what does that mean for them <laughs> There are people who live in places where there are no mountains. There are no coasts. Like half these environments just aren't accessible. What does that mean for them?
1: And that was something that, you know, was another sort of jumping off point for the book. I wanted to explore, or I wanted to make this book accessible and like actionable to anyone, no matter where they lived. Um, I think that to answer your question it is a real, like in my mind, it's like a public health crisis that, you know, so many people, especially, you know, city dwellers really don't have access to green space. And, you know, there's research to show that it actually has an effect on things like mortality. You know, if you don't have a park within walking distance of your house, it might really affect your your um, you know longevity. So I think that it's a huge area of concern. And, you know, it's something that I try and be very cognizant of. And I try and share practices that really anybody can use no matter, you know, where they live.
0: Okay. So let's say you're in Kansas and you read your book and you're going, wow, I'm deficient in coastlines. I'm just, is this like mandatory vacation sort of things?
1: No, and I mean, in every chapter, too, there's also a section on how to bring that landscape to you. So, you know, with coastlines, for example, there's actually some cool research to find that even listening to the sounds of waves, you know, on like YouTube or or what have you, kind of listed a similar, um, you know, relaxation response if you have a positive association with the sound of waves. I know, you know, that's sort of a, a trigger for some people. But so that's one example of, you know, it is possible to bring some of the benefits of these places to wherever you are. Um, obviously, it's not quite the same as getting out there, but you know, I still think it can be helpful.
0: So I have a super high resolution. I think it's like a 60-inch monitor I'm looking at you on right now. And when I'm not looking at anyone in particular on it, the background is a, a picture of Big Sur. And interestingly, I have it set up so that it changes with the time of day. So if it's at night, I see stars over Big Sur. If it's sunset, you see sunset. Sunrise, you see sunrise. Um, because I think that actually really does tie in with your circadian rhythm. Is there some value to having pictures of nature or having you know a, a TV setup like that that lets you see the stuff that isn't in your environment?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think it's telling that a lot of the preset desktop backgrounds are of like Yosemite or, or wild natural places. Um Yeah, there definitely is. It's funny, I actually interviewed one awe researcher who is, you know, doing a lot of interesting stuff on, you know, studies on the top of mountains, for example. And she when I asked her how she experiences awe, you know, she like a lot of us spends a lot of time at our computer. And she said, Oh, I have an awe folder on my desktop, which is photos of, you know, things that elicit awe in her that she'll open you know, when she, when she sort of needs some inspiration. So I definitely think there's something, something to that.
0: There's something to that. Um, I, I think so. And even if you just have, you know, an Apple TV or something, um, they have all these amazing nature shots that just randomly show up as a screensaver. Um, my kids for years have been playing a game. If they're looking at that uh, because the thing's gone to sleep and whenever the same picture comes up twice, they go excited and, you know, see the first one to call it. So there's, there's something it's talking to, uh, I think in our very low level operating system, things that we weren't really conscious of where like our bodies like that, even if we're not necessarily conscious, you might think, well, it's kind of dumb cognitively, but your body's like, no, I like seeing a picture of the sun, even if I'm not seeing the sun. And there's actually studies showing of uh, changes of people just from looking in their brainwaves from looking at a picture of the sun, even though the sun isn't in the room. So I, I think there's deep level communication happening. Um, And I want to get into what the eight environments are and what they do for you. And we're going to touch on probably a couple of those in detail. And and we've already talked about what the eight of them are. But do you think that people have like their environment? (laughs) Like, are you a tree person? Are you, you know, a coastal person? Is that something that's set by where you're born? Like, where does that come from? Or is that not a real thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I I started this book, I'll admit, sort of thinking that in doing this research, I'd find, you know, sort of like the ideal landscape or the place that seems to be, you know, most restorative and beneficial to the, the largest group of people. But I really did find that your sort of, you know, past experience, your memory, um, you know, it really does play a role in the types of places that you are most drawn to. Um, you know, there's, Interesting. A lot of the research that I refer to in the book is, you know, done in English-speaking countries because I speak English, um, and you know, more in Western civilizations Um, but there has been some really interesting work to show that for example indigenous populations actually have different landscape preferences than you know the like western college students that they were uh, compared to so I don't think that it's like an ideal you know nature across the board I think we all sort of have our own space or spaces Um, I think that those are flexible though you know I think it can definitely change over the course of your life as you get out there and explore more.
0: I have a theory, and it's certainly not one that's in your book, but it's, it's worth just discussing. So there's a couple of billion eggs that your mom could have chosen to mature. And the ovaries are the only part of the body that has 100,000 mitochondria per cell. Your brain has 15,000, your heart has 15,000, the rest of you has a lot less. And we think mitochondria are power plants, but they're actually environmental sensors and manufacturing plants that also make power if, if they want to. And they're the ones driving the selection process to pick an egg that's going to survive best in the environment that the mother was in for three months or the three months before you know that egg came to the surface. Uh, so I think that there's a wonderful symmetry and just evolutionary design for survival that way. And then the egg selects the semen. And it's not that it's the first to get there. We have lots of videos of dozens trying to get in, but then one gets in that's clearly selected by the membrane on the egg. So there's all kinds of cool intelligence going on around conception. And if you live within probably 10 degrees plus or minus um, on a a latitude away from the equator, you're gonna be wired for that. So if you're conceived and born near the equator and you go to the far north, you're probably not going to like the dark because your body was actually selected for more of a bright environment. And I, I've often asked myself, you know, does that correlate to the environment that just feels best at a low level in your body? Like I was um, conceived and born in a desert. And every time I go to the desert, I'm like, ah, oh, man, this feels so much better than all these damn trees, they're everywhere, like I can't get away from them. But other people go there and say, it's a dead landscape. I'm like, you don't know where to look. Do you think there's anything to, maybe it's not just what affects all people, but it has to do with where you're from, maybe where your ancestors are from?
1: I think that, you know, it's funny. I actually had this conversation the other day with someone who she was describing certain landscape and she said it did feel like sort of a homecoming. And she had a conversation with her father who had had a really transformative experience in a similar landscape. And, you know, he had never told her that. So I think that idea that it's sort of somehow maybe passed down is really intriguing. Um, I also just think, you know, it's pretty obvious that a place that you grew up in would have a certain resonance with you, but yeah, just sort of thinking about what more there could be to it, I think is interesting and could be a a cool place for, uh, for some research for sure.
0: I'm watching the comments from our live audience uh, from my mentorship group. And they're, they're all saying, you know, I'm I'm a coastal person, or I'm a desert person, or I'm a tree person. And most people I know who spend any time in nature kind of know that one kind of nature is better for them than another. Did you find that in your research, that, that different people are just like, that's the one? Or is it that we really need all eight of them in some kind of ratio?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that people can definitely identify as like liking one over the other. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Um... One of my intentions with the book was sort of to challenge folks to consider why that is and maybe what is sort of in that landscape that they feel kind of repelled by or like don't necessarily want to go in that they might actually, you know, like need to sort of borrow a, a spiritual idea. Um, so I think that that was a fun sort of thought exercise for me too, just to consider, like, why do we feel you know, drawn to these places and, you know, what is there to, to see in the places that we don't necessarily think of ourselves as, you know, being thriving in, for example.
0: So your last book uh, was about you know some of the Mars stuff, including astrology and whatnot. Do you think that there's any truth? Oh, I'm a water sign. You know, my astrological sign, you know, Mars and Aries were having a dinner party when I was born. So something special happens. Any correlations there that you've heard about?
1: Between astrology and the nature stuff?
0: Yeah. I mean, you've written books on both. You're the one person on Earth to ask this question. of. <laughs> you might go on a limb here, but...
1: Um, oh well, I mean, in astrology, every sign is associated with a certain element. So you could say that maybe that has something to do with what you feel. What you, do you feel think drawn that,
0: to. Have you seen any evidence? Have you like seen anything to think come together for you as you're writing the book?
1: Um. No, but I also wasn't necessarily looking for it. I mean, I think this book I really wanted to focus in on a very specific type of research, and astrology did not uh, fit the bill for it. But I think that, you know, whatever people feel drawn to, it's, you know, more power to them.
0: Okay. Uh, and I, I would support that if, if a certain kind of environment makes you happy, um, then you should probably spend some time there at least on occasion and have a picture of it or something. I, I, I think that's an important part of changing the environment around you so that it makes your body work better, even if it's not really that easy to explain. Um, I'm just thinking about it yeah give me a desert or high mountains that are mostly desert and I'm just way happier than if I'm hanging out in in the wetlands somewhere so speaking of wetlands it looks like about 40 percent of earthlings live within you know 50 or so miles of the coastline so what is the deal with humans and coastlines why do you think that is
1: so there, there has been some really cool studies, you know, again, mostly out of the UK is where a lot of this research is based, um, specifically the University of Exeter is a big, a big hub for it. But they've essentially found that people who live within five kilometers of the coast tend to have less self-reported, uh, self-reported you know, depression, anxiety, things of that nature. Um, and there are a few theories as to why. I mean, again, it's this idea that the beach tends to be a place where we go to exercise or walk or, you know, kind of get moving in that way. There was one cool study that sort of compared how people uh, move in green space versus blue space on the coast. And they found that while people tend to exert more energy in green space, people stay in blue space for longer and tend to report it as more enjoyable. So in that sense, they actually, like, by the end of the experience, have burn more calories or whatever. Um, so that was sort of interesting. And I think that the beach is definitely, you know, tends to be an active place for a lot of folks. Um, I think there's something in the pattern of the waves. Um, there's a really incredible author, um, who um, in his book called Blue Mind, I forget, uh, Wallace J. Nichols is his name, but he sort of uh, equates the the pattern of the wave and the sound of the wave to the womb and says that there's maybe something a little bit more, you know, harmordial there, which is an interesting theory. Um, I think just sort of like the visual uh, wave pattern is something that a lot of researchers think might have something to do with it. Um, you know, things like, The sounds, I think, are very, very calming for a lot of folks. But again, it does have a lot to do with your memory in that landscape. So I can hear the sound of ocean waves in, say, like Barbados or something, and it might resonate with me the same way that the waves growing up in Connecticut did, just because it's like, I don't see them, I just hear the sound and it sounds similar. But at the same time if someone, you know, hat doesn't really have any beach experience to go off of, like that sound isn't necessarily going to bring them anywhere, it's not going to be transportive for them and therefore it actually might not be as restorative for them as what, what the research is finding.
0: Do you believe in the aquatic ape theory of evolution?
1: Can you tell me more about it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what that you're talking about. There's a group of people who hypothesize that humans were water dwelling apes. Uh, if you go way back in time. And yes, we'll probably never know any of this stuff with absolute certainty. But the reason they're saying that is that we are poorly adapted to land and that if you cut our skin, um, it splits open in the way it would in the ocean, in all the ocean mammals. But all of the other, and we have a lot of subcutaneous fat, um, all the other animals, when they get cut, they're a lot more lean and they handle injuries very differently. And we're also almost entirely hairless or just tiny bits of hair like you. There was such a thing as whale hair too, but it's just very little bits. So we're the least hairy of them and we have this kind of soft skin with a layer of fat underneath it that would be way more suited to being semi-aquatic than it would be to say living in a desert where you have to wrap up and cover things up and all. So I I often wonder if that's why people live near the ocean because there's the other things you talked about. I agree with the womb theory, Um, but I'm just wondering maybe we're just, there's an ancient calling to that because that's our our home, and that's like a subcellular calling, not a you know. I thought about the ocean, so I wanted to be there.
1: Right. What's their explanation for not being able to breathe underwater?
0: Uh, well, it turns out that whales and dolphins can't breathe underwater either. I mean, they can drown; they just take a deep breath and go under for a while, right? Um, so, I, I've been working on growing a set of gills, um, but it hasn't worked out so far. But uh, that's right in right in line after uh, laser eyeballs, so. <laughs> <laughs> give me one time. Day, one day
1: you'll get there
0: <laughs> yeah Aquaman is uh, is kind of cool although I think Wolverine has one up on him um it's uh it, but it it's an interesting thing because that might explain why so many of us are just like we got to be near water plus what well, we like to drink it. <laughs> so there's that and that leads us to the next part of uh the next part of this or at least one of the other areas is around just rivers and streams. What do rivers and streams do for us specifically when we're around those? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols What do rivers and streams do for us specifically when we're around those?
1: Yeah. So rivers and streams are interesting. I sort of think of them as an amalgamation of a few different landscapes. You know, you have the grass, the green space, you have the the water, it might be running water. So you have that sort of element of it. Um, you know, they're usually tend to be surrounded by pretty fertile, or they can be surrounded by fertile soil and be surrounded by forest. Um so I think they're interesting in that way, in that they're sort of like the, like, quote unquote, like model landscape. Um, you know, it's interesting the theory that I mentioned earlier, the attention restoration theory, the, the couple of environmental psychologists who thought of that the way that they describe sort of like an ideal um, landscape for having that sort of cognitive restoration, it really distra- describes rivers to a T. There's an element of you know mystery. So you can see off into the distance and not quite know where a river is leading, but you have some sort of sense of like, oh, that's going to continue on. Um, you know, vastness, openness, um, and also just a sense of being away was a really important thing for them. So rivers, it's like, when you're there, you're, you're there, you know, it's, it's like something that's not in your everyday sort of um, purview unless you live on the river. But, so I think they're interesting in that way. Um, this is also the chapter that I get the most sort of spiritual in, in that, you know, when I was doing a lot of this research, when I'd ask people about experience they had at rivers, they would really talk a lot about returning to rivers of their past and having that moment be sort of like a reflective time with the river and, um, I think that there, there are a lot of, yeah you know, things to talk about there in terms of how this landscape, I think, encourages self-reflection in a way that a lot of others don't, um, there isn't as much research to show this, it's more anecdotal, but I think it's, it's unique in that way for sure.
0: And you have like Henry David Thoreau and, you know, people building houses over rivers, and there's definitely a really strong desire to do that. And there's also waterfalls too, which are are tied to those peak experience. A lot of people just have that sense of awe. I, I think it may be from the that really deep rumbling sound of, of a big waterfall. I think that has, uh, in fact, I know it has environmental um, and just biological impacts on us. Um, what did you find about waterfalls in particular?
1: So I didn't look into uh, waterfalls particularly, but I would agree with you that I think the sounds of it can, you know, be maybe maximize on um, those like water sounds and just, you know, give us those sort of benefits, um, you know, on a larger scale. But again, I also think waterfalls, you know, in, if you're someone who isn't familiar with them can be very scary. So I think that they may be, um, yeah, that might be another one that it sort of depends on, on the perspective that you bring to
0: it. Yeah, it could be overwhelming, especially for like kids or something, but usually it's awe. But it, it could also just that deep sound is probably tied to some kind of predator thing. Right. <laughs> you know,
1: I also, you know, I think about things like white noise and pink noise, and I think waterfalls often, you know, described as being a really good example of pink noise, which can be a very, very familiar, you know, thing to fall asleep to, for example. So
0: it it's pretty weird because some people have different near water experiences um, that can be positive or negative. But if you listen to any, any one of the, like going back for over the last 30 years, there's been endless relaxation soundtracks that come out. And there's always babbling brook. There's always waterfall. There's always thunder and lightning, which you actually would see more of in a desert usually when you get through real good lightning and thunderstorms. Um, and then you see um, ocean waves, And then if you have something that has all of those, you just kind of naturally, oh, that's the one that makes me relax. But it, it feels like it is kind of a personal decision. But some of them are definitely more effective than others. And if you're tracking brainwaves, you'll see this person responds to this kind of environmental sound. And probably even more interesting, there's a company I have no relationship with them. I was just intrigued. It's called Sonic Bloom. And what they found was that if they play the sounds of nature like birds chirping and insects worrying and all that sort of stuff in an orchard or around crops that the, the yield of the crop goes up dramatically. And there are other studies. These are in the ocean where they play the sound of a healthy reef and the underwater sound on, you know, a a sunken boat or something where they're trying to build a reef and then all the fish get attracted because it sounds right. (laughs) So there's definitely auditory cues from nature. But when you're in New York, I don't think you can get that in Central Park. I mean, there, there's the hum of the city that's, that's everywhere. You, you can't really get away from it. Do you think that's harming nature?
1: The sounds of the city are definitely harming nature. Yeah, there's, you know, reason to believe that it's, you know, shifting things like bird calls because they have to be, you know, heard over taxis and, and what have you. Um, so, yeah, I think noise pollution is a huge issue. Um, But I mean, I would agree with you. I think sound is a really, really important part of it. And I think that, you know, another theory that's very popular is the stress reduction theory. And it sort of posits that, um, you know, since humans did evolve in nature and, you know, to this day, when we're in an environment that might feel like it has, you know, the resources we need to survive doesn't have any you know notable threats, our stress system, you know, automatically calms down. Um, and I think, yeah, noise, you know, hearing things like calming, you know, birds, chirps and, and things of that nature can definitely get us, get us there for sure. But I mean, birds do exist in New York too. So that's good at
0: least. <laughs> the good news is that uh, back when everyone carried a Nokia cell phone and they all had the same ringtone before we got custom ringtones, there were a couple species of birds that started using the ringtone as their call. This actually happened. So now if you're in New York and you hear a cell phone ring, you could just pretend it's a bird call and there you've got your nature.
1: Yeah. I don't so know if that would have friend. quite the same effect, but Aww. that is very sad.
0: <laughs> you're breaking my heart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of the things that's interesting in, in your book is saying, look, you can be in nature, but you could also be, you know, listening to Tom McDonald on your headphones, um, you could be you know, looking at Instagram while you're sitting in a forest, or you could actually do like mindful meditation. And you talk about specific mindful meditation exercises. Um, can you walk listeners through one or more of those different short exercises that you could do in nature, or just tell me how it works?
1: Yeah. So I mean, another really fascinating field of research that's going on out of Sweden right now is um it's called the shorthand for it is rest um so it's a, the rest program but it's essentially this researcher who is curious if meditating outside might for some reason be easier than meditating indoors or be you know easier to drop in um and through his research he found that that seems to be the case you know comparing people who were in a traditional indoor meditation um like training uh program they um So people who did the same program outdoors, and I believe it was a garden setting, uh, were more likely to complete the program. Uh, They completed it faster on average, and they still got the same benefits out of it, even though they did, you know, complete it faster. So I think that that's a really interesting idea, and it harkens back to this, you know, notion that nature is a place that, it's very easy to, you know, have like soft fascination, or, you know, it's a, our brains sort of naturally rest when we're in these environments, which might make it easier to drop into a a meditative state. So I think that just getting outside is, you know, step one, um, and trying out, you know, a a, a meditation in a natural environment, Um, you know, try and find one with minimum distraction, um, just so you can sort of, you know, ease in a bit easier. And then, I would say one practice that I like to do is a sit spot meditation. So I'm sure you're familiar, but you essentially just, you know, choose a spot on the ground. You can do this in a beach environment. You can do it in a park, whatever. Um, Just observe what there is to observe there and gradually sort of work your way out until you're taking up, you know, taking in the whole, the whole scene in your vision. Um, I think that can be a nice way to just hone in on some of those like details of nature that you might otherwise miss uh, while still, you know, giving your brain a chance to, to rest and recover.
0: I think I know where that research is out of Sweden.
1: Yeah. Freddy well,
0: Um it, it comes out of Sweden because in Sweden, uh, it's so damn cold and dark half the year that they don't really have normal insect life other than mosquitoes. So I'm assuming he wasn't meditating during mosquito season in Sweden. But the rest of the time, there's no snakes, spiders, scorpions, centipedes, or the other things. And it's funny, for a desert person like me, I know how to move. You mentioned you know, like how to move in an environment. I know how to move in the desert. So cactus doesn't get me, but it did when I was a kid. And I know how to not step on a rattlesnake. And it's built into my my system. My kids grew up in you know a rainforest. So they know how to step over a mossy log that I'll probably fall on because it's built in. But I took my son to Las Vegas um to go uh shooting and to go um destroy a old car with a tractor which was great fun but he goes to sit down on an old tire and the instructor was like stop because he doesn't know to look for the snake in the tire before cuz we just we don't know how to move and so it i think that might be part of why we feel comfortable in some environments because you know how to be there but if you grow up you know in Brooklyn let's say you know how to be in a city environment and you can be calm and you can cross the street instinctively. Whereas my kids are probably not safe to stand near a busy street because, well, you know, we don't have that here. Uh, I I remember the, the awe. I was like, dad, there's five lanes in each direction. Like, I've never seen a highway like this. It's Yeah, there isn't one on our island, son. Right. So you get these things that are just intuitively obvious to you, Um, based on where you live and where you've grown up that aren't intuitively obvious. Just like people in Africa who are out on the savanna, like a a traditional tribe, I would be a total idiot in that environment. I'd die in probably five minutes, but because they just know. So there's that knowing that comes from being in nature that is probably somehow calming. But being in a foreign nature environment environment is more awe-inspiring. And it's the novelty of it versus the comfort in it do you think it's more important to be in novel nature environments or more important to be in familiar nature environments?
1: So it's a great question. I mean, I think both hold a lot of value when I think about going into an environment like the desert or one that's a bit, you know, can be considered more like of a harsh landscape or there are more, you know, ways to get tripped up. I think that if you're new to that environment um, you might feel uh, sort of hyper vigilant there. You're always looking out for, you know, what have you, which might diminish some of the stress response. So I think it's all about just going and prepared, and you know, being aware that, you know, if you are, you know, by yourself in a new landscape, it might not have quite the same um, effect. But that's not to say it's not, you know, worth it to explore new places. I think that there's a lot that we can gain from seeing, you know, new scenery and also conquering new challenges. The outdoors is obviously such a place where we can you know, really gain confidence in trying and trying new things. I think we see that a lot with things like surf therapy or, or um, things of that nature.
0: Talk to me about mountains and highlands. What are the benefits that those provide?
1: Um, as I mentioned before, there is some reason to believe that, you know, exercising outdoors can maybe even be more beneficial than you know doing the same exercise indoors. So there's definitely that part of it. Um, I think we tend to spend a bit longer in mountains, you know, when we're hiking than we might just on like a neighborhood park walk. Um, And so I think about research that's shown that, you know, a a walk of around 90 minutes is really uh, a powerful way to decrease things like rumination. So, again, that's sort of like negative thought pattern uh, or just the looping thoughts that a lot of us can really fall into, especially after a long day on the computer um so one of the practices that i share in the book is just thinking about a problem or you know challenge you're facing right now at the bottom of a, of a hike once you get to the top th- write about it think about it again and see if you've come to any sort of new new insights just from that you know mental escape um so that's another part of it and then off which is like a really interesting emotion that's the source of a lot of research right now but know, awe is essentially what we feel when we're, we're placed in an in a environment that is vast or we perceive it as being vast. Um, and it's interesting in that it's like one of the few emotions that really causes us to reconsider our place in the world um, and sort of have to, it's almost so surprising that it like causes us to like resituate ourselves in our environment. So um, in doing that, it's been shown that it can increase things like creativity, it can incre- increase um, curiosity pro-social behavior. And it also makes us feel like we have more time, which I think is really cool. Um, you know, just sort of opens up our, our world in more ways than one.
0: So I'm a little bit curious. How would I, like, like if I'm feeling a certain way and I want to shift my state, I mean, how prescriptive can we be like, oh, you know, like, like, let's say you're a therapist and a patient comes in, you know, you're highly depressed. You should go outside. Okay. That's one thing, but you need you know, 47 hours in a a highlands environment to to bring you back. Are we close to being able to sort of say, for you, you need this kind of nature for this amount of time to create this kind of a state? Do you think we'll ever get there?
1: I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, there have been researchers who are looking into things like how long you need to spend outdoors per week to reap some of these benefits. Um, I think one of the most widely accepted figures is two hours. I personally just have such an instinct that it's so personal that it's difficult to be that prescriptive with it. However, I do think there are practices that can be universally beneficial for people. You know, things as simple as looking out. There was one study that I referenced in the book that was about looking out onto um, green space. So they were looking out onto a, a, a rooftop garden versus a just concrete, you know, normal roof. Um... And in as little as 40 seconds of looking out onto that was enough to um, free up some cognitive resources and make them better at working memory. So I think that's kind of a cool figure we can use. You know, if you're stressed out about something or you're stuck on something, you know, 40 seconds of just looking out the window onto, you know, green or blue or whatever you, you have access to with your view, even the clouds, um, I think, you know, can be, can be cognitively helpful.
0: That makes, that makes a lot of sense. What about looking out at cityscapes? What does that do to us?
1: Um, it depends on the cityscape, so the one study that I could think of for this was it compared people who have a view of literally just you know like your experience in Shanghai, like no green to speak of um from a high rise versus one that had a view of a small pocket park, and they did find that the pocket park view tended to be you know more restorative um which makes you know, sense. I think that I mean, cities themselves can be, uh, drivers of all, you know, I think there's so much to see here that is very, you know, awe-inspiring. So I don't want to discount, you know, city landscapes at all. You know, I think about crossing over the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan and that view is just spectacular. And, you know, I'm sure I get some of the sort of cognitive benefits from that, that I would, you know, on a mountaintop, but, um, it's, it's been less studied, I would say.
0: Um, it's, uh, it's in my mind about having a a broad variety of experience. And I've traveled you know, Himalayas, uh, Andes, and, and much of the world. And every time you go into a new environment, it's, it's fascinating because it does different things to you. And there's different energies in the earth that some people can feel. And there's another guest who's been on the show where we talked about the probiotic. I think it was Zach Bush, actually. We talked about the probiotic benefits of being in different environments. Just breathing the air introduces new microbes that take, uh, take root in your lungs and in your gut. So you tend to have more bacterial diversity from spending time in those, uh, in those areas, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. What about houseplants? I see you've got a couple. Are they real? They, they are real. Yes. Okay. Thank just checking. <laughs> um, is that important?
1: Um, I think it depends on who you are. You know, for me, I, I like them. I like the little, you know, reminders of green, um, Horticultural therapy is a thing. I don't dive into it super deeply in the book, but you know, just having, you know, some sort of aspect of nature indoors, I think it, it can be helpful for a lot of people.
0: There you go. All right. Final environment I want to chat with you about in our interview today is ice and snow. Like what's good about that if you're not a skier?
1: Yeah. You know, people who live in in cooler climates will probably can, you know, resonate that. In winter, it's, it can be a bit harder to get outside You're not as motivated. You know, it's more comfortable indoors, yada, yada, yada. Um, but again, research is showing that, you know, can, like uh, I'm thinking sp- specifically about research out of the University of Michigan, where it obviously gets very cold and snowy. Um the participants who took a walk in a snowy environment in, you know, January or a winter month, did have the same um, sense of cognitive restoration when they returned than in the summer. So that's not to say that they rated it as positively; they didn't necessarily enjoy it, but they got some of the same benefits from it. So I think that's sort of important to remember: is you know, getting outside in winter, while it might not be quite as pleasant, it can still be super beneficial. I would say the only caveat is just you really need to be prepared, layer up. Um, you know, researchers I talked to said if, it's, if the environment is so vastly different than what you're expecting, there, it's not going to be restorative. You need to sort of have an idea of what you're getting into. Um, but I think that winter walks can be, can be wonderful.
0: Um, there's definitely the, the cold therapy and breathing some cold air that's not too cold. Um, and, and that it can wake you up for sure. And there's also the noise, right? When you're in a snowy environment, even the forest sounds are quieter. So you're in a really peaceful, almost like in a cave environment where you just don't hear much and that can be relaxing. But again, that's snow in nature. If there's uh, an airport overhead, it probably doesn't work as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, but to that, I would also say, you know, I think about when it snows here in New York city, it's really one of the only times where the city gets quiet um, when there aren't as many cars on the street, you know, there aren't as many people out. So in that sense, like I can, I think it still can be very, you know, restorative. Um, I talked to a few like acoustics researchers for the book and they were talking about how silence is really a luxury these days, especially if you do live in a city environment. So, you know, taking those opportunities to get on out into it for after snow, for example, um, can be great.
0: It's, it's totally true. There are even studies showing that kids who grow up on the lower five floors of a building in a city have lower IQs slightly. And part of that is from air pollution and part of that is from noise pollution. And a lot of people like to play uh, white noise, but it turns out white noise for very young infants, probably in the first six months of life, is actually not good for their brainwaves. It's disruptive. They, they want peace and quiet. Uh, or maybe ocean waves or something, but not just straight white noise, but as you get older, white noise or pink noise can be good for you because it masks out city sounds, so you get more of a relaxing thing. so I, I think if I lived in a big city, I would spend extra money on you know double drywall with a sound insulator, <laughs> so and you know triple pane windows uh, and heavy curtains, so that then you can actually have sort of a sound cocoon that 's separate from all the the hum and all the other sounds of a city because you just you don 't need that in the middle of the night i don 't think your nervous system benefits from that.
1: Yeah. noise pollution. no joke.
0: Anything else that you'd like listeners to know about the return to nature about your new book?
1: Um, I mean, we didn't get into the, the other side of the book, which is just the sort of activism component. But, you know, I would encourage people after they do take these sort of walks and meanderings outside to consider how to like pay it forward to the landscape that they just visited. And, you know, I, my book walks through a lot of different mindset shifts that you can that can might be helpful for, you know, encouraging more sustainable action. Um so yeah, I would en- encourage, you know, readers and, and listeners to just to pay it forward to our to our poor earth. <laughs>
0: um are you hopeful? I mean in the future you think we're gonna have enough nature?
1: um depends on the day but for the most part you know when i'm asked that question i say i say yes i mean i think that the human species is so brilliant and we'll be able to work our way out of this mess i just hope that it's it's soon enough
0: Um, i think we've got a pretty good shot at doing that and it is going to require some big scale engineering and ingenuity because we use technology to make a mess so we're going to have to use technology to clean it up because it's not going to clean itself up, so just being aware that that these spaces are valuable in and of themselves is it's really important. Going back, you know, to John Muir who really got the national park system established by getting government leaders from Washington to come out to Yosemite, and once they saw it, they're like, "Oh my God!" Like their sense of awe was so big that they protected it, because otherwise, you know, right now, it would probably be all high rises and, and dams. So it's pretty cool that. Uh, Uh, pretty cool that, that we're continuing that tradition of just showing people it's valuable and necessary so that we can protect the spaces that we have.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, thanks for writing your book, Return to Nature. It just hit the shelves as this podcast comes out. So if you're listening to the show and you wanted to know, or just be a little bit more aware of which environments are gonna do what to me, what can I do in an environment to get more of the cognitive and relaxation and recovery benefits from it. Those tools are all in the book. You'll find it's crazily well-referenced. So it's not like we're just saying, oh, nature's good for you because I like going for hikes. This is a little bit more deep than that where like there's actual science that shows this is real. And one of the things about, talking about anything that, that maybe people don't know about yet, is you can tell it to them But they oftentimes just won't believe it. But when you say, well, here's what it is, here's the ancestral set of beliefs about this, and here's the data that supports that the ancestral view had merit, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, um, this fits into my worldview much better than just hearing it said from someone who may or may not be an expert. So if you want to follow the science in a way that's actually valid, uh, Return to Nature has a lot of science in it for you as well. So thanks for writing it, and thanks for making sure that we all have some open spaces uh, to play in uh, over time. Um, so I appreciate you, Emma. Yeah,
1: thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: And if you guys are interested in learning more, go to E M M A L O E W E. dot com, and you can find out all about her work. I'll see you all for the next episode. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey.
2: The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.